Welcome to a radical discussion of independence, free will, liberty, and the left-hand path. This is Damon Ossifer with your host, Paul Frederick. So let's get down on it. Uh, welcome, friends and fellow Damons, to another episode of Damonosophy, where we are still fighting for liberty and the left-hand path. And my guest tonight is Benjamin Caps, who's making supernatural sci-fi films that combine live-action and life-size stop-motion animation demon puppets. It's like it was made just for me. <laughs> Thank you. Life-size so puppets can interact with live actors via pixelation. The puppets are built from found objects, gifted taxidermy, and are often based on Buddhist, Hindu, and Jainist imagery of demons from Naraka, also based on his own left-hand practice. So, Welcome, welcome, Benjamin. Like we were talking just before we got going here, um, I, I I stumbled across your stuff on 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 the internet, and thought, oh my God, this is incredible. Uh, I got to talk to this guy, and and so you've got a film out called Civet. Yes, yes. And a new one. So tell us all about it. What's going on? Uh, sure. Well, um, my films are short films, uh, under twenty minutes. And um, they are supernatural sci-fi films, which is a little bit loose. The sci-fi uh, elements in my film are not completely necessary to tell the story. Um, the retrofuturism, um, they are set vaguely 50 years in the future, but they look like the 1970s. Um, I do that because that turns me on. I was born in the 70s, and my imagination was first captured by imagery and sci-fi probably around 1980, 81. So... That's what I like. It doesn't have to be part of my stories, but it turns me on. And it's really fun to uh, incorporate that kind of imagery. Um, but right now I am making a new film called Terminal Emulator. I just ran an Indiegogo campaign for that and I'm building a set. Um, part of it is set in space. It doesn't have to be set in space, but it turns me on, so I'm doing it. Uh, and my films uh, follow nefarious characters as the protagonists who generally, at least with my last two films, have unique sexual problems, and they use equally nefarious ways to try and solve the problems, which don't always work out for them or others. And then demons, in the form of stop-motion puppets, intervene and try to help them with their problems. So my new, my new film is called uh, Terminal Emulator, and it follows a film called Civet, which you mentioned. Civet came out in 2018. It's about a 20-minute long film. Uh, I play the main character. And it follows a character who is autosexual. He uh, is sexually attracted to himself. And autosexuality is a real sexual issue, orientation. And I had never seen another film about that subject matter. There's some tiny amount of autobiography in all of my films. So I just kind of blew that up and twisted it. Right. And I like to take kinks and things that I'm into and just blow them up and twist them, make them a little worse and, uh, and make uh, films based on that. Right. No, like, again, like I said, it's like the movie was made just for me. Um, <laughs> That's so funny. Thank you so much. Um, and, and, you know, so when you mentioned 70s, I, if you're a child, like you're growing up in the 70s. Yeah. For me, some of my first video things that really blew my mind 
were stop motion stuff like like Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer, um, you know the the Christmas specials that were stop motion when when uh, when we were kids, you know Davy and Goliath. Did you ever see Davy and Goliath? Yeah, sure. sure. Yeah, it was like a religious like Sunday morning uh, Sunday morning type thing, but something about them just can be so incredibly like creepy and weird. So. I don't know, do you think those uh, were, were an influence on you, those sorts of things? Definitely. You know, of course, I grew up on Ray Harryhausen, you know, Jason the Argonauts and, um, you know, Clash of the Titans. They remade Clash of the Titans recently. It's a garbage. Don't watch it. They make fun yeah. of Harryhausen. <laughs> um, but I was, I don't know, probably eight and I was at a friend's house. I grew up out in the country and we didn't get cable. Uh, but my friend had uh, Skinamax and uh, the film Laser Blast came on Cinemax. If you know the film Laser Blast. Does it have like some uh, some like aliens, kind of like tall guys with, uh, yeah, like. It's about a guy who X. finds this alien artifact and when he puts it on, it turns him into this ray gun shooting. It's it's considered probably one of the biggest turkeys ever made, but okay. the stop motion was done by a legendary animator named David Allen, who's now deceased. He did a lot of stuff. He uh, worked on the subspecies films by Full Moon Video. If you know subspecies, the vampire films. He did some stuff for the film, The Howling, some a little bit of stop motion. But anyway, I saw that and was like, wow, this is this is really bitching. I, I this is inherently creepy. That's why I like stop motion versus, you know, CGI, because it's it's creepy. Um, it's a puppet coming to life and it's everything's a little askew, very dreamlike. Um, but it wasn't until much later that I decided that I wanted to try to do stop motion. Um, I thought I had to go to school for it. I studied theater. Uh, I wanted to be an actor and I felt that if I wanted to do stop motion, you probably have to go to film school to do this. But uh, after rewatching one of my favorite stop motion films called Blood Tea and Red String, if you're familiar with that film. It's uh, Jan Svankmeyer? Uh, it's actually a, an animator named um, Christian Sagavsky. Okay. Um, and I rewatched that film and just said, you know what, fuck it, I'm just gonna try and do this. So I got some clay and I got a camera and I just kind of guessed and put it into Premiere in my computer and it came out okay. It wasn't, it was tedious, but it came out okay. So I refined it a little bit and um, I bought some software and did some research and, you know, it's, it takes a long time. You know, it takes an entire evening to get, get five seconds worth of footage, but it's, it, it's, as Harry Housen said, it's very godlike. You move the puppet, you run 300 times from the puppet to the, to the camera and then the thing comes to life when you push play. It's absolutely incredible. Yeah. It's really, um, um, moments between moments that we can't perceive, you know, you you are forcing those uh, into the real world. And it's uh, my, ver I love surrealism, it's my favorite style of art, and it's my version of surrealism. Of course, Svankmeyer, you see this Alice poster back there, he's a huge influence. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, he, uh, he does a lot of life-size stuff. Yeah, that's great. So you said you grew up in the country, where did you grow up? I grew up in rural southern Missouri, in a town of about 1,500 people. Oh. Um, and, uh, I grew up out, 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 I was in a suburb essentially of this little town. So I grew up out on a farm. Uh, you wouldn't know, you wouldn't know to look at me, but, and my accent is gone. But, well, uh, what is that? What's the name of the town? Uh, the town in Missouri is Bloomfield. Bloomfield. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. I, I grew up in uh, a little town in Missouri as well. Oh, called, uh, Springfield. Uh, that's where I was born. Oh, okay. There you yeah. go. My parents, my parents lived in Lebanon, Missouri, when she, my mom was pregnant, and they went to Springfield. To, to oh, crazy. Yeah. Well, I got to freak out. If we, Did you go to any elementary schools in Springfield? 
No, we ended up moving uh, to Columbia. And then when I started school, I had already moved to the other side of the state. And that's where I started school. Okay, okay. Um, oh, that's yeah. crazy. Missouri, wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and you know, I, I, I left there when I was like 10 years old or so. My parents moved to Nebraska. And then I, I went and I lived in Wisconsin and Chicago area for a while. But um, many years later, I went back to, uh, jo I started going back to Joplin. Oh, sure, I'm in Joplin. So I have a bunch of family there. And Joplin is like, it's like a, it's like a town now. I mean, it used to be like, a, like, like much smaller, I guess. Um, but it's, uh, it's, 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 it's grown. And there's just something about it. Maybe it's because I grew up there. Is there something about the land in Missouri when you're driving into it, how, how green it is and the rolling hills and stuff like that. There's something very, uh, very nice about it that I appreciate now that I, I didn't appreciate as much when I was younger. When I was younger, I was like, yeah, I want to go out and see the world and everything. But absolutely. Yeah, I wasn't able to sneak out because I lived in the country and it would be a five mile walk to go party with my friends in the gravel pit, you know. Right. <laughs> the gravel pit. Gravel right. pit. Or they drink the Boone's Farm, you know, the mad dog. Right. That's a uh, uh, that's a Missouri thing because of all of the all of the mining, uh, mining stuff that goes on there. You got gravel pits to like uh, hang out in. So totally. That's cool. And so where, where do you live now? I live in Chicago now. OK, Chicago. When I graduated from theater school, it was either moved to LA or moved to Chicago. And I decided I wanted to be a stage actor versus a film actor, so I came here instead. I'm glad that I did. Um, I like LA, but I don't know at this point, unless my film uh, work blossoms more, that I would want to live there or at least have a residence there. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it, it seems like a hard place to live. I mean, there was a time in my life when uh, we were, you know, when I thought that that was the place that I was going to go live. And even then it was hard to hard to like go there and get established. And now it's like even that much harder and the economy is just not very, uh, not very kind to it. Um, and we have a great film scene in Chicago now. Um, the, my cinematographer, he's constantly getting work here and, and doing great stuff. So it's really easy to get a crew together, to get studio time, to get anybody that you would need on a crew. Uh, yeah. No, I think that that's really true. The, the the time when I was in that area, and that would have been 90, um, 94, 90 to 97, like kind of time period. Um, we worked with this, uh, we had a manager in Chicago, a guy named Bill McCormick. Okay. And um, I think he does, he, he's a sci, he writes books now. He's like a sci-fi writer or something now. But, but I mean, he was like, when we were working with him, and this is with my uh, uh, band, goth band, Morphine Angel, he was hooking us up with, with like videos, getting us onto video soundtracks and everything with like the local like filmmaking scene there. So um, when I saw your stuff and, and watched some of the promotional stuff and the other people that you're working with, and it's obvious that there's a, there, there's an organization here, that there's an industry involved with this just based on the quality of it. Um, it obviously stands apart from like a totally independent, you know, totally independent like kind of projects. Ensor, if you're familiar with him, um, my favorite painting is actually, you can't see it's hanging out in the hallway here, but it's called uh, Skeletons Fighting Over the Body of a Hanged Man. And it's two skeletons in hell, presumably, and they are fighting over a person who's, who's hanged themselves. And there's a sign around their neck that says civet, which in French is cive, um, which is a sauce made out of the blood of a rabbit. 
essentially you stew a rabbit in a sauce that you've made from the blood and that's sive. So uh, I chose the name because stewing in your own blood is a metaphor uh, for this autosexual character. Okay, and then that's a thing. It's a recurring theme in the in the film too, because the two guys in the computer lab are like they're talking about the, how you make that that dish, and then at the end, when you're having dinner, you're like, "I'm gonna have the rabbit." Yes, uh, yes. <laughs> I'm glad you caught that. Thank you. Yeah, I decided to, to to you know to throw that into the dialogue and spoon feed that a little bit so people catch on. So I'm, I'm glad that you glad that you got that. Oh, it was great. It's like it's like the kind of kind of stuff that I just know. It's just like peppered with like all kinds of like like uh, meaning and and Easter eggs and stuff like that. So it just draws draws your attention in to um, trying to decipher what's going on. And I mean, it feels to me like I mean, it's it's got like a you know, there's like a uh, a Blade Runner like like kind of feel to it. I mean, there's. You really are putting forth that sort of feel, that atmosphere, that feel of of that sort of like dystopian uh, kind of like future type thing. Like this conversation uh, in 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 Civet, there's you, you call into um, what is it? It's like the employee. Employee assistance of, program, yeah, yeah. The employee assistance program, and this seemed like such a great, like, like 1984-ish kind of. This is what people will do for therapy in the future. Really, this is what people are doing <laughs> for therapy right now, right? People are getting therapy just by going on face, you know, on Facebook and and going through something and on there, and they're getting advice. And the advice that the guy gives in the in the film is like so so choice it's like um what does he say like um you know take some time for yourself go go for a walk it's like, just bullshit that's not going to right help. right just, that's the kind of advice people really get though that's what really people are given as advice for things and people will take that oh okay well i'll go do that then you know the uh the actress who plays uh my lover in uh civet she's playing the, the lead character in terminal emulator i, I will only be in the new film very briefly i've played the lead character in my last two films um i had an actor who was going to play my character but um he objected to the nudity and the sexual content there is some sexual content and nudity in my films um, and um, when my film screened at the HP Lovecraft Film Festival out in Portland, incidentally, I, I'd always thought that Philip K. Dick fans would be the ones who would gravitate toward my work. I, you know, I love some Philip K. Dick. My favorite novel is *The Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldridge* by. Oh, that's that, right here, man. That's uh, that's my that's my favorite book of his. My, you know, and I'll drop a hint: if the if his kids, if his family is watching, if they ever want to make a feature film, think about. I'd like to direct that. I'd like to direct that. Um, so, um, but my film was screened in a special screening, the Not Safe for Work screening at the HP Lovecraft, because there's some nudity, and there was another film called Claw, which was a lot more graphic than mine. It's a woman giving birth to this lobster baby, and it's very graphic. <laughs> but they said, you know, if, if you if you don't want to stick around because there's sex in this, you know, you can leave, but that brought more people in. So that was, it was nice to have my film shown in a packed theater to all these Lovecrafters. So the Philip K. Dick uh, film festivals all rejected my films, and I, I was devastated. I was like, oh, fuck, wow. this is my audience. I'm not getting into these film festivals. But the same day, I got an acceptance from the folks out at Lovecraft, and the Lovecrafters really like my work. So that's wow. that. It was really something. 
You know, I can see it going. It, it, it makes sense in both worlds to me. I mean, when you said uh, Philip K. Dick, I'm like, oh, yeah, absolutely. 100%. That's the feel of it because it has all the all of the identity stuff. You know, all like every Philip K. Dick, you know, novel is about some kind of self-identity, you know, some I, I'm not sure who I am or or who am I and 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 stuff like that. And that totally that's what what's going on in Civet is all about like I identity. Um like the scene where he's like he's chasing some image of himself. He finds some image of himself like staring back at him and and um stuff like that. So explain that part of the film to me. What What's going on there? Uh, you mean the opening scene with the mirror? Uh, no, I mean the the scene where he's out he's out walking around outside, and then he comes to there's this bridge overhead, and there's oh, a figure standing up there that looks like himself. Sure, absolutely, sure. Well, that uh, that's part of the uh, the therapy scene, basically to, to nutshell the uh, the plot of the film because of a childhood trauma. The main character who I play, Deke Lape, he's a, he's a corporate executive, and he had a childhood trauma, which he talks about. Uh, where he was interested in pornography, but he didn't have any access to any. So what he chose to do was take naked pictures of himself as a 10-year-old with uh, an Instamatic Polaroid camera, where in the photos he cuts off his head, you can't see his head, and he, he, tucks, his, he tucks his dick so you can't, it's a genderless body, and then he masturbates to pictures of himself. Um, and his mother comes in and catches him doing this and traumatizes him and shames him. And because of this, um, he stops being attracted to other people. He only gets off thinking about himself, looking in a mirror, and this gets worse and worse as he ages and makes a lot of problems for his uh, relationships. So the beginning of the film, he's having a relationship uh, and a, there's a sex scene with his partner and um, there's a mirror above the bed. This actor shot in my bedroom is actually a mirror above my bed. Um, <laughs> and uh, while he's having sex, he sees himself in the mirror fucking his partner, and then he starts reliving this mother trauma and freaking out, and this, of course, ends the sex and causes problems. So his girlfriend, she's going out of town. He's, she says, you need to get your head screwed on straight. So he decides the way to get this out of his system is to find someone who looks just like that, like him and fuck them, essentially fucking it identical twin. So he goes on an 80s equivalent of an adult chat site and finds somebody that looks like him, which is this person who he meets in Chinatown, to go and have, you know, a liaison, but it doesn't work out. Yeah, and okay. He ends up killing the person. So this is a person who, hey, it's a bleach blonde person, looks just like me. I'll go fuck him. I'll get this out of my system. This will fix my problems. Well, the person is wearing a wig, and they actually try to rob him, and he ends up killing them. I'm spoiling the plot a little bit here, but it's, it's worth it to see the puppets. So as you can see back here, it's, uh, there's a puppet that looks looks a lot like me. So that's that's the demon that shows up to help. Yeah, I recognize it. That was actually cast for my face. We did a live cast. That's a silicone silicone puppet. So wow. Uh, yeah, that's a very very creepy creepy portion in the in the film when it goes into the it goes into the. Uh, the, the altered reality, the stop motion uh, portion of it. Now, tell us about the um, tell us about the stag character back there. Sure, uh, um, the stag character is going to be the main. Inzilizaratus is his name, and he's the main demon in my new film, uh, Terminal Emulator, which follows um, the character of Nezla Prather. Her name is not said in Civet, but she's the main character in the new film. 
the the nutshell uh, premise of my new film it is about a corporate executive who's also nefarious, who's stationed on Ganymede, um, an installation on Jupiter's moon, and she is having a inappropriate dominant mommy little boy sex relationship with a subordinate, with this blue collar subordinate working on the space installation. And she finds out that she's going to get to go back to, to Earth three months early. And she decides to just ditch him. Uh, she decides to just grab her shit and leave. I'll never see this guy again. And she's being very cruel to him and not treating him very well in the context of this kink relationship. Uh, but he comes home early from work and catches her packing her shit. And he has uh, baby boy has a meltdown and tries to tries to off himself in front of her. Um, so this causes problems for her and she tries to solve them in some unhealthy ways and some demons show up to help her with that. Um, speaking of Philip K. Dick and the three stigmata of Palmer Eldritch, there's a little bit that I take from that. Uh, this demon has three entities inside of it fighting for control. And uh, the, the premise is that this demon, since the triad inside of it, it has three, it's gonna have three voices, is imbalanced. They want to subsume another soul essentially into the demon body to create a balance. And they've been watching her doing this awful stuff with this guy and they are trying to convince her to essentially off herself so they can absorb her. So technically the film is about the demon. But in the context of Philip K. Dick, uh, people live on Mars in, in the Philip K. Dick novel, and it's, you know, Mars is really boring, there's, there's no grass, so they use a doll called Perky Pat. Perky Pat. Perky Pat, <laughs> which is an equivalent of a Barbie doll, and Perky Pat has a boyfriend named Walt, and they buy these things called layouts, which is essentially a dollhouse, and you can create a little diorama of Earth in your living quarters on Mars, and then you take a drug called a translation drug, which allows a group of people to hallucinate in a group that you're actually inside the body of Perky Pat as a group controlling this thing, and you imagine that you're back on Earth and vicariously live through this. Through this, uh, and I thought that would be terrible. That would be multiple people inhabiting one body. That's especially as a punishment, a Narakan punishment forever. So that's the premise of. It takes from Carl Jung and his, his idea that triads and trinities in most religions are imbalanced and are flawed, and there should be what's called quaternity, which is adding a fourth aspect. So the demon is trying to add a fourth aspect to create balance and create, uh, create harmony so they can control the body better by absorbing this nefarious corporate executive who's abusing her boyfriend, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That was very long-winded. I'm sorry. I hope that that's not too confusing. No, it's great. I can't wait for it to wait. Wait to see the whole thing. I think there's clips of it on um, on YouTube. There right? is. There's a little stop-motion test where uh, my friend James Cook, who I've acted with many times, he's very fluent in French. He does the voice, one of the voices of the demon. And what's more frustrating is uh, none of the entities inside of the demon uh, speak the same language. So I have a friend who's from Bangladesh. He's going to be speaking Bengali. And I'm going to have a, a friend, I think, is from the Czech Republic, being speaking Czech. So they can't understand each other, and they're all inhabiting this one body. It'll be all be subtitled. And there's another puppet here. It looks like he's made out of prosciutto ham. He's the he's the uh, assist. He's the you know the henchman of this. And you see, he's got uh, got a you know I've made him anatomically correct. He's got a giant cock, because most demon art from you know 16th, 17th century, the demons all have you know dicks and you know things. So. You know, there's a lot of sexuality in, in, in my films. 
No, that's excellent. Did you know that uh, the Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldritch is a book that PKD wrote before he had ever experimented with psychedelics? I didn't know that. That's very surprising. It's one of his early ones. He hadn't done psychedelics yet. Um, and then just, I think, everything everything else he wrote after that, oh, he'd done psychedelics, you know, uh, at, at that point. Um, but it's interesting. I read that. I, I, I heard that. I don't know. I read that on some, yeah, I read it on the internet. Um, I had to go back and reread, um, the three stigmata again, uh, just to, just to, just to re reconnect with it, um, at that point. But, um, I think that's like one of the most, uh, moving books of his, Nowadays, I always think of, um, I, I think that Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook is the great example of like, of uh, Palmer Eldritch, because it's like basically, you know, people who are on, when, pe when people are on Facebook, they're like, oh yeah, I'm just, I'm using it for myself, right? You know, it's my individual thing that I'm using it for. But the reality is, is that you're really in Mark Zuckerberg's world. You're in one guy's like reality, you know, it's subtly subtle, subtle aspects of this one guy's personality pervades this entire like mode of reality out there. Um, and, and that's just one example, but I think there's tons of examples of that, that three stigmata, uh, theme, you know, and he puts, you know, these clues into it that how you, you, you tell if you're hip, if you're in the know, you can tell, oh, this reality is being controlled by, you know, so-and-so. And the, the three stigmata refers to some injuries that the Palmer Eldritch character, who's a uh, an auto factory tycoon, has sustained. He's, he has artificial eyes and he has artificial teeth. And I, I had read that Philip K. Dick was, you know, sky gazing, and he kept seeing teeth in clouds, teeth in the sky. So that's why he decided to to base this character on some things that he was witnessing. And oh. Palmer Eldritch is missing an arm because he was in some kind of hunting accident. So you've got this really yeah. surreal. I always thought a really tall, skinny actor like um, John Lithgow or Ronnie Cox from RoboCop should play Palmer Eldritch. Oh, yeah. Like, I'm a Texan with a cowboy hat and all these fucked up teeth and stuff. <laughs> yeah. uh, I always picture him with a Texas accent. Totally. Yeah, totally. No, well, that's, awesome. They will make a feature film out of that. I just don't know who's going to be doing it. I'm, right. really, I'm really scared they're going to botch it because that's my favorite book. I would, <laughs> I would probably botch it, so I would be terrified to take it on. Yeah, that'd be rough. That'd be a that'd be a real challenge. Definitely. So so right now in my film, I'm building a set. Um, my film is takes place on Ganymede. So I've got a the building that I live in here is a four flat, and I don't have any tenants. Um, so I have a living room that's empty, and I'm I'm building this cramped living space on Ganymede right now um, with some of the Indiegogo money that I raised. Um, so. Some of it will take place upstairs in my in my house, in my living room, but uh, I'm building this little cramped living quarters right now. So hopefully I'll have that finished by the end of the year. Right That's now, awesome. just me working on it right now. So Terminal Emulator, do you know when it's going to be completed? Is there like an ETA for when it comes out? Um, I'm hopeful that I will have all of the set built by the end of the winter and we'll shoot the live action. I'm, I'm guessing the live action will take about two days to shoot. It's all going to be shot in my house. Um, I've learned that going out and finding locations is fun, but it's a pain in the ass. It's a, filmmaking is very expensive. You know, I was a musician for 20 years. That's a lot cheaper. Making films is very expensive. You have to pay talented crew and you have to pay your actors. And, you know, people get naked for me and they do sexual things. I got to pay them. I think that's completely fair that, that you know, yeah. uh, so 
but the stop motion will take a long time because there's a lot more puppet stuff in this. People keep saying, Ben, we love the puppets, you know, keep do more of the puppet stuff. We want more puppets, which makes me think, well, you, I hope you like the live action too. <laughs> but, but, but most of my films have one puppet sequence. This has several puppet sequences. And I'm doing what's called pixelation, which is where you animate a human along with the puppet. So the person has to, to move a frame at a time and there's dialogue, so you have to record the dialogue and then map it out on a, uh, an exposure sheet on how to move the mouth to get it to match the dialogue. And you can do that with, you know, these, these puppets just have jaws that just kind of go up and down, but a human getting them to articulate words a frame at a time will, takes a very long time. Right. So, so I, I would expect the stop motion will probably take three months of days to shoot. Yeah. So I don't know. I'm guessing next fall, I'm guessing maybe a year from now it'll be done. That's, that's conservative. I don't know. This is a little more involved project. And is there a, is there an Indiegogo for it? Um, well, funny enough, there was. In June, I ran an Indiegogo, but two weeks into my Indiegogo, my Facebook got hacked and disabled. And fucking Meta will not help you. If, you get, if anybody's gotten their Facebook hacked, you jump through the hoops, you send a picture driver's license, you write them. Unless you have a business account and they're making money off of you, you're done. Yeah. Yeah. And if you try to make another account during that time, they, they knock it off. Uh-huh. So I had a second um, Facebook account and I've reinstated it. I'm going to put it back up. So I'm going to run my Indiegogo a second time because I lost a lot of visibility. I was running ads mostly to Japan. I was hoping the Japanese audience would like my work. Um, so I'm going to, I only raised about half the money I need. So I'm going to run another Indiegogo. I'm probably going to put it up in about a week. Okay, cool. So and be like, sure and uh, be sure and talk about that over on Instagram uh, where, where I'll see it because I'm not on Facebook. Okay, yeah, I haven't been on Facebook in three months now. So, and I have a website. the The inner below is com is the name of my website. So you can go and if you search for my name and stop motion, that will definitely come up. Excellent, innerbelow.com. So, um, I want to talk about. I want to ask you about your um, influences with uh, your left hand path practice and Naraka and, sure. and and where you're getting some of the some of your I, philosophical sort of influences that are being woven into this? Um, sure. Um, uh, well, I work in, a, in an art museum and we have a very, very good collection of uh, Hindu and Jainist and Buddhist art. Um, I'd always been fascinated by Eastern uh, philosophy and Eastern religion. I was raised Christian. I was raised as a Methodist. Uh, I gave that up. I went to a Methodist music camp when I was 12 and, you know, I just I just gotten into Skinny Puppy and they didn't like that so much. And it that kind of made me realize that this was not uh, the religious practice for me. Um, but what I found fascinating with um, and I, I don't claim to be an expert in, in Buddhism for sure, but I'd always curious, you know, do, do Buddhists have a concept of hell and punishment? Because Buddhism doesn't seem like it lends itself to that, but they but they do. And it's it's called Naraka, and um, most of the influence in terms of the style. I mean, these are not necessarily based on anything specific. Um, although this is uh, this puppet is based on a um, uh, a piece of uh, Naraka artwork that we have in the in the art institute where I work. Uh, <clears throat> but a lot of this is based on some rock carvings, the Dezu rock carvings in Baodingsan, China, um, where they show a lot of Buddhist and Jainist punishments. They show what happens to you. And the punishment is not like in Christianity, it's not permanent. You're not 
thrown into hell forever, you know, abandon all hope, all you enter here. It's something that happens parallel with your existence in a different time frame. So while you're alive, you can be punished for what's the equivalent of a million years, but then you get to go back and get another chance. So um, I just simply like conceptually, you know, the, the way the, uh, the iconography and the, the, the way the demons are portrayed, essentially. Um, I don't really base them on Abrahamic lore or, or Christianity. <clears throat> Although, you know, I do in my left-hand path, you know, mm-hmm. Goetia and, um, you know, those are the, the powers that uh, I evoke when I'm doing my own magical practice. Mm-hmm. And I, I have a partner with whom I do magical practice, and uh, she's not a left-hand person. Um, you know, I've been reading a lot of um, Gems from the Equinox is a book that I just got recently, and uh, yes. I have read a lot about Crowley's uh, concept of sex magic, but we've been doing a lot of, <clears throat> a lot of sex magic, and... Um, uh, evoking a lot of different things, and uh, our combination is really interesting. A left-hander with someone who's not left-handed. Right. Well, I mean, it's just like doing things, right? It's just doing things and um, and, and, and and opening up your mind, you know, and 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 taking another look at reality, or what 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 you thought was reality, the world around you, and seeing, can I? Can I change this? Yes. Or maybe can I try and see it more clearly? You know, have I been living in an illusion? I mean, that's a big that's a big Buddhist uh, a, a Buddhist thing that that happens uh, um, as as well. So, um, and I think a lot of those influences uh, that you're talking about, I think that comes through in the in 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 your video work as well and the film work as well. There's like a I don't know if authentic. I want to say authenticity. I don't know if that's the right word. <laughs> I don't know if that really makes sense with this kind of stuff. But 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 yeah, it is. There's something uh, authentic about what's what's being created. You can always tell. You know, when I was when I was young, I was like really into the occult when I was when I was younger, um, and and still am. But it used to be like all of the movies that came out. They were always wrong. They always got everything wrong. Oh, sure. They just knew that everyone who was, all the people involved with making these movies have no idea about any of this stuff. They never read, you know, magic and theory and practice. Yep. They've never read uh, anything by, you know, certainly anything by Anton LaVey. Um, and, and it's like, they just get everything all wrong in it. It's just like, it's always so frustrating. Um, but it was all we had. So... Yeah. <laughs> Like a devil dog hound of hell with Richard Crenna. Right. You know, or uh, the, the, the Damien the movies. This is an oh. example. The Damien movies. You know, it's all completely from a Judeo-Christian per- perspective. Yeah. Uh, but, God, it was all we had. So, yeah, man, 666 and Born of a Jackal. I, I love it. You know? Um, but, I mean, like, there's more and more film coming out now. More and more independent film coming out now and a lot of that's changed now a lot of these these ideas that i've that i've just you know mentioned which were extremely rare for kids who you know grew up in missouri um is now just very 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 available is very available um and 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 much more embedded or penetrated into uh into culture more so there's more movies out there that are authentic um but yours is one that that definitely like conveys that, um, and so I really I really appreciate that. Thank you. 
And there's been a resurgence of stop motion in uh, in films in the last 10 years. So my hope is that CGI is, you know, this is being seen as there's a, the, the kids are starting to get back into the stop motion stuff. The CGI just sucks. It's not, I mean, it, it, it can never be, It's it, it, in my opinion, it's never creepy. It's never the scary. Wait, there's you know? just weight to the, you can tell that they're not, I mean, and that's a detriment because I use the life-size puppets and gravity. You're fighting against gravity because the damn thing falls over. I kick the table over. I get, you know, 300 frames in and the puppet droops. But, you know, there are ways to fix that. But um, but at least it has weight and it feels it's tangible because in, in, in CGI there's no tangibility. And it's just... It just sucks. Yeah, um, I mean, I grew up on The Thing and, you know, Alien and stuff where it's real effects and you've got yeah. Rob Teen and, you know, Rick Baker and all those people. Yeah. So um, the, the Thing, I mean, that's another one. I think that's just one of the best. That's films. a masterpiece. Yeah. I mean, it has its problems. I mean, they're scientists in their Antarctica and they're not doing shit. They're just playing ping pong. And there's one scene where the, the guy gets set on fire and he busts through the wall you're in Antarctica and the wall's paper thin, but you know, okay, I forgive, I forgive that. It's a, it's See, I a, didn't even know that. I didn't even thought yeah. of that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm apart, but you know, and I, that Stevie Wonder song. Uh, I'm, I'm like the the dog at the beginning. Oh yeah. The the way the dog like walks in like so so carefully, and I I I, I listened to a, a I think it was like a. Uh, you know, they, they were doing DVDs where people talk over it and, and talk. John Carpenter talks over what they were doing. And he said the thing with that dog was it was like a like half wolf or something like that. And the dog just acted like that. And he's like, oh, my God, this is it's like the kind of gems you find as a as a filmmaker. You find something that is just you, you couldn't have planned for this. It wasn't in the script. But this is fucking perfect. Yeah. 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 And there's been a remake of that. Don't watch it. I didn't care. Right, about right. No, there's been like a horrible, a horrible remake of it that is that is no good at all. But like the effects in that, they still stand up. Absolutely. Right? I mean, to me, they still stand up. People, if you've grown up with like CGI, there'd be a tendency to uh, to accept it. Like I, I, I knew this guy uh, who was younger, and we were talking about Star Wars, and and he said that um, Episode Four. That's an okay movie, but just the special effects were so bad in it. And I'm like, and I thought, I don't think I can talk to you anymore, man. <laughs> I don't think we can be friends anymore. <laughs> That's just too wide of a cultural, there's a cultural gap between us. And I just, I don't think it can be traversed. I don't think it can be traversed. I, I, agree. <laughs> I mean, the original Star Wars films in their original form with all the mistakes, you know, there's a, there's a squadron of TIE fighters going by and there's a black spot where they fucked up and there was supposed to be one. Yeah. George Lucas wanted to fix all that. Don't fix that. Yeah. That, yeah. That's, yeah. That's, that shows it's real that this guy struggled to put this together and, yeah. You know, THX 1138, where he actually shot down where they were putting in those subway tunnels. It's like, how did you get? How did you know that was down there? How did you get permission to do that? It's so magical that that happened. And he wants to yeah. fix it on post. Fucks it up. Yeah. No, that's a sneak in and and film and and yeah. get out real fast before before anyone like comes up and talks to you. Yeah. So so um, I'll uh, I'll mention at this point. So I like took a film minor. You mentioned earlier, like you did music and then you went to film and how expensive film is. So yeah. I kind of started out with film. This is in the 90s. I, I took a minor in film and I did like an independent film where we went and, and it was called Shiva. It was super eight. 
and uh, part of it took place in a in a uh, or outside a church. And, and part of it was inside of the church. For the inside of the church, I got permission to like go in and do it. But for the outside, it was this Catholic church. This was in Lincoln, Nebraska. Okay. Um, and so I just went. I just said, okay, no, we're just going to go there on a, a Tuesday afternoon. We're going to film film the scene, and then we'll get out. And we got out there, just shot really fast. And then right around when we were done, some priest came walking outside to ask what the hell we were like doing. <laughs> you know, what are you doing out here? I'm like, oh, we were just filming, but we're done now. Bye. You know. <laughs> Guerrilla <laughs> filmmaking, but um, but yeah, it's like it's real expensive. It doesn't even compare to like like the I mean, you know, the shit that you do in a band to to get things going and uh, on an independent level. Um, it, yeah, I, start, I started doing sixteen millimeter, and that was extremely expensive. I thought, oh you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, like, you know, I you know Texas Chainsaw Massacre in the seventies and, and Sallow, one hundred twenty days of Sodom was shot on sixteen millimeter. I was like, I love the way that looks, but yeah, man, yeah. that shit processed so expensive, and that was when I was trying to do Shakespeare and stuff on film, and that was the wrong approach. You know, uh, I was trying to impress Kenneth Branagh, and <laughs> I failed miserably. So. <laughs> I sent him some of my films and, uh, you know, I really like Kenneth Branagh and I sent him some of my work and I got a, I got a letter back, but it was a little lukewarm. So I oh, decided okay. that well, kids today aren't really into watching Shakespeare films, you know? No, they're not. But I mean, God, you got a letter from Kenneth Branagh. That's pretty cool. Well, I, well, there's a little story. I, I had to bribe him a little bit. Um, I have a friend who is an antiquarian book dealer and uh, we were talking and Kenneth Branagh's name came up. And he said, hey, you know, I, uh, I travel around with my, my book booth to book shows. And he said, I was in Vancouver a few years ago. This has been a long time ago. This is in 05. He said, I was in Vancouver, and uh, apparently that's where they were shooting that awful Wild Wild West film. Um, I love the TV show as a kid, by the way, um, with Will Smith. And he said, Kenneth Branagh came to the book show. And Kenneth Branagh came into my booth. And he had a framed piece of parchment that had Lord Alfred Tennyson, the poet laureate's signature on it. Apparently these are very rare. Uh, he didn't sign much stuff. And Brano really loves Tennyson. And he was looking at this thing and looking at this thing, trying to decide whether they wanted to buy it or not. And Brano's girlfriend comes in and says, oh, Ken, you know, let's go. So he doesn't buy it. So I said, do you still have that? He said, yes. So. So I, I bought it, and <laughs> I, I wrapped it up, I put my film on a DVD, and I, I bought this leather-bound box on eBay, and it had a big hasp on it, and I, I did a wax seal on my letter, I made this very sort of medieval-looking thing, and I, I sent my, my film of, you know, The Duchess of Malfi over to Kenneth Branagh, and I, I got a letter back, he's like, oh, thank you so much for the Tennyson thing, he talked about the Tennyson thing, and he said, oh, your, your film is okay, so it's a two-sentence Thank you, Kenneth Branagh. So I, I bribed him a little bit to get him to write me back, but he did. <laughs> Doesn't matter. He did. No, that's awesome. When I arrive in hell, I will have a bribe in my hand. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I wrong approach. That's excellent. All right. Well, good deal. So, um, so you got Civet. You've got the new film Terminal Emulator coming out. Right. There's going to be an Indiegogo up. Yes, yeah, so, second Indiegogo, that'll be up soon. So if, if anybody would like to contribute, the film is going to get made. I mean, I'm in the process of pre-production. So any contribution toward it will, you know, you'll get credited and you get, we're given some t-shirts and some stuff. You know, I've got some perks. Uh, so it, your name will get attached to a film that will be made. And there is an audience for it. The Lovecrafters really like it. My stuff screens all over the place. 
Uh, I screen overseas sometimes. So yeah, it's uh, it's it's going to happen, and uh, hopefully this will this will catch on at some point. The the live size stop motion and the uh, live action. Uh, I. I, I think it will, man. Anton LaVey once said, there's nothing more powerful in the universe than an idea whose time has come. Um, so I think that you've got a lot of momentum going with this and you're definitely onto something unique. And so um, so I'm real excited about it. And so we'll put the uh, web, your website address and information in the show notes page for this episode. So funny, funny Anton LaVey story. Um, back in 1998, I decided I was going to join the Church of Satan. So, um, and I heard that if you join the Church of Satan, Anton LaVey calls all the new people. So <laughs> I, I filled out the all the you know the 10-page questionnaire. I went out and got a money order for 100 bucks. I sent the thing off, and this was in October of 1998, and it was a week before he died. I was like, oh, <laughs> oh no, he's not going to call me. He's not going to call me. So many years later, I, I, I worked with and became friends with uh, Boyd Rice. And Boyd said, no, he didn't call people. That's bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> so it's yeah. bullshit. <laughs> so that, that, is bu- that is bullshit. Yeah. Uh, I, I, had, uh, I had joined that organization in uh, 1988. Whoa. Whoa. Yeah. And, and uh, I mean, all you got, all that I happened there is, yeah, I got a red card. That's what I got. And it was, it was a business card. It wasn't even a plastic thing. Right. Yeah. It's just cardboard. Yeah. Or cardstock. Yeah. Yeah. No, that had not changed since uh, 1988. And I think it was uh, even even older than that. So, yeah, that's all that's all I got. So and the amount of money that they wanted at the time in 1988, it was a big deal for me. Money when I did that. Yeah. It's a bunch of groceries that I sent. I wonder what they did with the money. (laughs) (laughs) Who knows? Um, You know, certainly didn't 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 uh, put it towards fixing the 6114 California Street before it got uh, or something, isn't it? Uh, Yeah, it's a con. There's a condo there now. Um, I did. I did see that house, though, in 1991. I was in San Francisco and I wasn't. I wasn't uh, friends with any uh, any of the people there um, at that time, but I just went by and and uh, with some friends and you know took a picture of myself in front of it just so I could see it and and it was it was cool to see it. It's a, the funny story with that is so me and my friends were like we're like oh yeah take a picture of me real quick and you know I'm you know standing there and now okay now I'm gonna do it across the street and uh, I noticed while I was standing there getting photographed that there's this green Jaguar parked here on the street. And there was this woman inside of it, like with her head down like this, kind of trying to hide. And I realized it was Carla, Carla LeBay. I'll be damned. Right. And so I was like, I just got, became very, very uh, embarrassed of my uh, immature behavior here. And so that we, that we left but the photograph I have, you can see the green Jaguar and her in it. And then I met her years later. She, uh, did like an industrial uh, music, or not not really industrial, avant-garde kind of uh, musical project. Um, and she came through Houston and uh, we went and met her. Actually at the same club where I played with our mutual friend, uh, Aaron. Aaron, I love Aaron. Yeah, yeah, back in the day. So so that's the other thing is, is music. Um, so you did projects, uh, Luftwaffe, mm-hmm. and then Et Nile. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do some stuff for my films now. Uh-huh. Uh, 
let's see. I, I started out, I was a skinny puppy fanatic and I really wanted to be Kevin Key. So back in college, I got some synthesizers. I got a Roland Juno 106 and some stuff and uh, tried to do some electronic music. We had a pretty good goth scene when I was going to school in Columbia, Missouri and uh, studying theater. And we had, a, we had a really good goth scene from Missouri. Uh, if everybody came out to an event, you might not, you might have 100 people. Mm -hmm. uh, some fringe people, Vampire the Masquerade people and stuff. And I had a little goth band and stuff, but um, yeah, then I went and saw, uh, I, I really liked Boyd Rice and Non, and I knew he was playing, he was playing with Death in June, he was playing with uh, Strength Through Joy, um, who I'd heard, I had never heard Strength Through Joy, but I'd, I'd heard some Death in June, kind of liked it, but I went to, we went all, I went up to Chicago to see this and it just blew my mind, the the presentation they did with the timpani and all the masks. Oh, is that, that at the Dome Room? The Dome Room, I yeah. was at that show. Yeah, if you watch the video, the bootleg from that, you can see me up in front. Uh, <laughs> I was really goth, and I had on a corset and a skirt and stripy tights and, you know, uh -huh. makeup and stuff. And uh, that that show fucking blew my mind, man. And uh, yeah. I decided I wanted to do this genre of music. I met Boyd, and we talked, and um, I got his phone number, and I, I, I called him, and we talked for like four hours. It's, wow. You know, it was really great. It's really, really neat experience. So I started. Uh, I started a project, and from '98 until 2012, I did a band. We played with Death and June and Non a couple of times. So we did a tour around Europe with Boyd, and um, uh, we broke up. The last show we did was the Wave Gothic Festival in 2012, and we ended up breaking up. And uh, I started a project myself and some new musicians called uh, Et Nihil, and um, we did a lot of work with Awen, with Aaron and Katrine of Awen. Played some shows overseas. Uh, actually, their very first show overseas was in Germany at uh, uh, the Moratori de Salutant Festival in uh, in Frankfurt. We they invited me to come. I said, "You've got to get this band Alwyn to come. They're fucking great." And now they're playing all over the place. You know, Alwyn's really blown up. Their music's yeah. fantastic. And yeah, you know, if you like if you like martial industrial and neo folk music, and you know, buy an Alwyn album. It's fucking great stuff. Yeah. Definitely. But I, I, I kind of gave that stuff up. You know, I, I felt like um, I really wanted to tell stories. I want to be a storyteller and uh, kind of felt like I'd run out of stuff to sing about. And I just wasn't as excited about touring around anymore. I want to, you know, I'm, I'm a middle-aged man now. It's hard to admit that, but, you know, I'm in my 40s and time's ticking and I want to do something different. I did that for 20 years and I played, I've played 11 countries. It's unbelievable to think about that. I played in Japan. I played in Lithuania. I played in Croatia. It's I can't believe it. Just some some songs I wrote in my living room. People wanted to hear those overseas. I think it's fucking incredible. Yeah. So. Yeah, so what? So so tell me about the transition point. How did you? When when you was there a moment of I'm going to do something different now and give this up because because you get really attached to stuff. That's why I asked. Like myself is like I've I've gone through these things myself. I know you get really attached to the things that you're working on that keeps you in music for a long time. Like yeah. you were just you were just describing to me why people end up doing music for so long because there is no other feeling in the world that oh. you get other than being on stage with like all these people and stuff that you wrote in your living room that you put together and you created this and now you're like you're you're like putting it out there into the universe there's no greater feeling so what what was it like as you transitioned from that into something else into film 
Um, well, speaking to that um, a little bit, we played a show in, in Lithuania and there was, um, we were up performing and there were a group of very attractive young women right in the front and they were singing along with my lyrics. And I thought, oh my God, these, they, they know my words, my lyrics, my songs. So after the show, and this this, this was a show with non-headlining, was four or 500 people at this thing. I, I went around the crowd till I found them and I said, hey, thanks for coming to this. Thank you for knowing the words to my song. And they're like, oh no, we're Russian, we no English, no English. So. They didn't speak English, except for my lyrics. They didn't speak the other English. They they were really confused by me in my my English. So that was that was really neat. But it's things like that that keep you going. You know, there's an audience for it that keeps coming back. Um, people all you know wine and dine you overseas and give you really great tours of things. But you know, I just. I hate to say this because I love the neo-folk crowd. I just love all those people so much. But I started to see the same people at the shows and it just felt like sameness. And I was just singing these nihilistic songs. It just felt like I wasn't telling, I wasn't saying anything new. It was just more, you know, nihilistic, solipsistic stuff. And I, I thought I really want to tell narrative stories and it's just not happening. I love the guitar. There's nothing more. It's just like soul sexuality being up on the stage and playing the guitar and you turn around the other musicians it's you understand this it's just yeah. it's just there's nothing better than that but i had done it for almost 20 years and time is ticking and i really want to do something else now and i don't know this the scene was sort of evolving and changing and i don't know the people are i hate god i hate to say this but there's some people just sort of aging out of it you know neo folk uh -huh. nights martial nights fewer and fewer fewer people were coming. They need to go to bed at a reasonable hour now. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm, I'm guilty of that myself. If I'm not in bed by 11 o'clock, I feel like shit the next day. So. Wow. Well, 11, you're still, you still got hope. I'm, I'm like nine o'clock and trying to push off eight actually. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know that there was really exactly a moment, but I don't know. Um, you know, we put out a new, we put out some new material with my new band and people liked it, but same time it was just time to try something else and uh yeah. I think people understood that and i'm really loving doing this i feel like i'm a little late to the party i feel like i should have been doing this 15 years ago but you know i'm, I'm doing it now and i'm getting people i don't know are giving me screenings it's not just like my buddy throwing me a bone and said oh we'll show your film people i don't know are wanting to watch my work and it's i think it brings something a little unique to the table people yeah. with problems interacting with demons there isn't a lot of that out there Right. <laughs> I'm going to want to watch that stuff, but I'm learning more and more that a lot of people are. They want to see, they yeah. want some teeth, teeth in yeah. the sky. They want some teeth to their, to their artwork and see something yeah. new. Yeah, so, no, I, I think you're right. I think there is a, there's a, there is a demand uh, for, for that kind of stuff. Um, everything's and, rehash now. I don't think this is necessarily rehash. If I start writing something and I think, is there a film out there that already addresses the subject matter? I, I throw the spec script into the garbage. I start writing something else. It's like I ask people, what am I ripping off here? That's what I used to do with music. I come up with this cool guitar riff. What am I ripping off? This this is too good. I've got to be ripping something off. This has to be a death in June song. I'm ripping off. Uh -huh. <laughs> okay, so we go forward. So. Yeah, it's 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 hard not to rip. It's hard not to rip things off because you just okay. you know. Oh. All the good things like go up into your mind and they swirl around in there. But as long as you put your unique uh, essence into it, then um, it, it, it then it can become um, something original. And 
you know, I went through a similar thing that you're that I think you're talking about, like with music. I, I went through a point where it was just like this. Just I, I, I know where every everything that I'm doing, I know where it leads. Yes, you know? exactly. I know where all of this is going to lead, and I just I don't have the I don't want to put any more time into it. I want to put my my time and my my resources and my money became more valuable to me yes. than putting it into that because prior to that, for years. That's like everything that I did, you know, any any money I made at a job or whatever. Oh, this is all for the next album, the next tour, the next piece of gear, the next, you know, whatever, you know, whatever I, I wanted to do. Um, and then I, I came to a point where it just, you know, like you, you said the word uh, nihilism. Yes. Uh, yeah, there's something nihilistic about this. And so I just, you know, um, I just put I it all down for a while and I got into uh, writing and I, I did some books and I started doing this podcast and and now I'm doing music again but I'm doing it yep. in a different a different kind of way where you know it's just you know me and and uh, and uh, Joel uh, from from Asmodeus X are just getting together and playing acoustic guitars like a couple of like a couple of couple of uh, Texas rednecks basically. There's some videos of you guys playing. Really <laughs> yeah, I love it. Yeah, and I'm, you know, I'm doing, I'm still doing music. I've kind of reverted back to my Kevin Key fantasies, and you know, I've, I've got a, a bunch of, I love 80 synths. I have nine 80 synthesizers, so I'm, so I'm, I'm sequencing and composing some, some uh, songs for my soundtracks and uh, all the incidental music and doing some vocals. So I was never a very good electronic musician, but I'm a lot better now. I've, you know, as a neo folk musician, I learned a lot about composition. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I've matured, and I'm doing it in conjunction with my film it's not one or the other so uh, you know you really learn more when you take like a skill that you've done for a long time and then you like put it down and then you go and do something else and apply that to something else all of a sudden that old knowledge like kind of like flowers and reforms and and uh gets more colorful agreed agreed and i feel very guilty because i have all of these I like 70s guild 12 string guitars and I haven't played them in years. I mean, it just, they don't call to me anymore. And I picked one up six months ago and I, I had forgotten a lot of my riffs. It's like, oh fuck, I can't remember my songs anymore. It was a very strange feeling that I didn't. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, I've been there. Um, what? So you, you mentioned theater. Yeah. You took theater classes. I did. I studied, I have a BA in, in theater performance emphasis. So when did that happen? Is that early on or is that? Um, I, well, I went to theater school from like 93 to 98. I, I switched schools. I went to school in Arkansas for a year, which was not a good idea. So some of my credits didn't transfer. So I was a fifth year senior. Uh -huh. uh, but uh, yeah, I did a lot of stage stuff. I did a lot of, um, uh, a lot of Shakespeare um I wasn't getting cast in a lot of stuff, so I had my own theater troupe, and we would rent theaters and write our own material. Um, I like experimental stuff. I like a, a theater theorist named Antonin Arto, who's famous for um, a theory called uh, uh, theater of cruelty, which is not exactly what it sounds like, but, you know, um, transference. Uh, so we wrote some of our own material and rented theaters out, and I wanted to be a stage actor. That's what I really wanted. Um, that's why I came to Chicago, but... I don't know. It's just what I want to do in terms of storytelling can't be done on a stage. And I want to direct, you know, I, I, um, 
I was auditioning. I absolutely fucking hate auditioning for things. And I auditioned for a Shakespeare play called uh, The Winter's Tale. You may have heard of that one. And um, at the same time, I was making a Shakespeare short film. And we were rehearsing the film in this multi-purpose building where they were having the auditions. So I go on audition. My audition, they don't. They clearly didn't like my audition. I did a monologue. They didn't like it. Uh, and they didn't call me back for a second audition. So I come back the next day when they're having their second auditions to rehearse my own film. And the director sees me and he gives me this look in the hallway like, what the fuck are you doing here? We didn't call you back. You're not supposed to uh -huh. be. <laughs> and my heart just really, really sunk when I, when I heard that. But I read a quote by an actor named uh, Griffin Dunn. I don't know if you know who Griffin Dunn is. He's an American werewolf in London. He plays okay. gets, gets killed by the werewolf and keeps coming back. Yeah. He was an actor, but he produces his own work. And he, he said in an article, you know, if you're just an actor, you're going to be disappointed because you're not going to get cast and stuff. And you're going to be colossally disappointed all the time. Or you get cast and stuff and it's garbage. You have to act in people's visions and they're just fucking shit. So he's like, why don't you make your own stuff? You can cast yourself. You can make your own thing. If it flounders, it's only your fault. So I was like, fuck this. I'm not going to audition for anything anymore. I'm going to make my own work. Even if it's a struggle, even if it's not good, I only have myself to blame. And yeah. I can do what I want. Yeah. And this is what I want to do. I want to show people in space with sex problems having sex with demons that are puppets. So, <laughs> who's going to You're creating that? something. You're, you're creating something and putting something out there and basically creating your own, you're creating your resume as, yeah. as, a, as, a, as an artist by, by doing that. Yeah, it's a lot harder to do it, but you know, I feel more satisfied at the end of the day. And I don't have people critiquing my, my auditions is not very good. Right. <laughs> I hate, I hate doing monologues and audition stuff. I hate it. Um, so, so is it as just as rewarding, like doing Shakespeare on a, on the stage, right? Right. Which is someone else's words, someone else's play, someone else's words, you know, and you're going to interpret it in your way. Do you think that that is just as rewarding as, like, say, doing uh, at Nile or Luftwaffe on stage? Oh, oh I, I understand what you mean now. Yeah. Uh, uh, no, I don't. Um, I, I don't want to do Shakespeare anymore because I feel like I'm playing – I would be like a cover band. Uh-huh. Uh, right. And, I, and I, I said something that really offended a friend of mine. She plays in an orchestra, and I said I wouldn't want to play in an orchestra because I don't want to play covers. <laughs> and she got really, and she's oh well, you know, she got really, I mean, I really, I like her a lot, but I, she was yeah. offended that I would consider classical music being interpreted by an orchestra and a conductor to be covers. But I said, for me, it's, it's covers. I want to make something from nothing, you know? Um, right. So it's, no, it's not as rewarding. I mean, you, with Shakespeare, as an example, is, uh, it's skeletal. You just get, you know, a square in Verona, enter Benvolio, enter Mercutio, you know? There's nothing there. You can put it in space if you want. You can have monsters in it if you want. But even with that, it's still somebody else's story. So I want to tell my own stories. And right. that, those stories that I want to tell have not been framed out by anyone else in a way that I can I can subsume them and reinterpret them. I want to do something completely new. There's yeah. so much rehashing. And I would consider it to be a rehash. So... I do like stage acting. I do like interpreting other people's work, but at the same time, I've I've done that already. Um, I do like playing the occasional cover. You know, I you know did a cover of Little Black Angel at one point. You know, so you know it's fun to reinterpret, but I, I really want to make something from nothing. Like puppets, right. they're made from junk. I like making something out of nothing. It really gives me a sense of accomplishment. So I, I think it might be valuable to be okay with you if since I have some puppets back here, maybe to show them a little bit and talk. Yeah, about yeah, them. no, that's a great. Would that idea. Right. 
Here, let me let me pick up my laptop here. I don't know how long you. I mean, we're over an hour, so I don't. If you're okay with that, give me. Yeah, a I got about another uh, fifteen minutes or so. Okay, all right. So I'm going to show some of these puppets I've made, and I, I don't have these lit very well. Um, so this puppet, speaking of Shiva, this is actually based on a large brass mask of Shiva that we have in the Art Institute. Um, she, uh, this this puppet speaks Cantonese in my film. She's in a film called It Grows Dark, which is the first film that I made that was actually shown in festivals. Uh, it's available on my website. Um, it's nine minutes long. I play the main character. Um, so yeah, her jaw kind of just articulates. It's kind of an up and down jaw. Her head is on a ball joint. Um, there's these ball joints that you can buy that are for attaching a, um, a camera to a mic stand. Because the problem with big puppets is getting things that swivel around. Um, so this is the one time I found a ball joint that can be used. So that's in her neck and her arms move. And she's actually a um, um, uh, sewing, like a, a dummy for mounting dresses for sewing. Right. She's, she's got articulated arms and stuff. Um, and she, in the course of the film, has this this big, uh, this big, no, I'm not going to do it right. This, this big Chinese fan that she she uses. But yeah, she speaks Cantonese, and I really like my puppet speaking other languages. Um, I have a friend whose mother is from China, and she did the voiceover, and she's she speaks in a deadpan, very very creepy. I saw uh, that one. Now, when you say when you say Art Institute, that's the Ch Chicago Art Institute. Yeah, it's the the art museum. I, I work with them. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, we have we have a great collection of uh, of uh, Eastern Eastern art and Eastern mysticism stuff there. So so this puppet, he's uh, I call him prosciutto because he looks like he's made out of uh, uh, meat. Um, he's made out of a um, this is a deer skull that somebody found and gave to me. The jaw doesn't articulate, and he's got um, the armature inside is made out of what's called armature wire, which is a really stiff wire for puppetry that bends and won't break. And um, it's a framework made out of water pipes, like plastic pipes for water. And the joints have uh, um, the armature wire. And I just, I covered him with silicone. It's just like silicone you'd buy at Walmart to, to fix your bathroom. And you can squirt it out and you can put pigments in it and just kind of smear it on. It looks, looks kind of disgusting. And um, he's got a, he's got a, a, a rig, a, he doesn't walk very well on his own, but he's got a rig behind him that's weighted so he can walk along the floor. His legs bend backwards so they don't actually support any weight. And these deer antlers are his hands. And as you can see, he's got a gigantic cock. And I'm thinking about putting a, uh, an armature wire in it so that so the dick will get hard. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to push the boundaries of stop motion a little bit. Um, so, so my ex-girlfriend who used to live with me, uh, she, her uncle shot a deer and had it mounted and uh, nobody wanted the deer mount, so she gave it to me. So, so I, I cut the head all up, and uh, this is the main demon for my new film. Uh, uh -huh. He sits in this throne, but I have a rig where he'll stand, so he's going to be standing for some of it. He's about seven feet tall when he stands, so it's going to be pretty impressive. But I put a ball joint in his mouth, so his, his jaw you know, moves around, and it's stiff. And these are buffalo teeth. I, I cut it, and I bought these buffalo teeth from this sort of dubious Native American website, uh, and they're upside down. That's actually the roots of the teeth. Um, but he he talks, and there's a uh, a film, a little short clip I made of him talking and moving as an experiment. It came out pretty good. But yeah, he uh, he's got you know articulating arms and and fingers, and his legs don't do much. But um, 
Yeah, he's. Uh, there are going to be three entities inside of this uh, puppet in the new in the Terminal Emulator film, and uh, some some sexual things happen with him and uh, the main character. Um, let's see here. So this is also from my film. This is the little henchman character. He's made out of two coyote pelts, a coyote skull, and some um, rabbit pelts. He's really clunky, but he walks. Um, he's the homunculus is his name, um, and he is summoned by um, by the sort of Shiva Shiva character to help the character in the film with a revenge uh, a revenge plot. But uh, yeah, he he's the first puppet that I actually had walk. And um, I use what are called tie downs, where you have to drill holes in uh, a surface and use bolts to hold him down so he doesn't fall over. That was a real pain in the ass. And so hopefully no, no PETA people will come after me for the taxidermy. I didn't actually kill any of the animals here that he used. I just <laughs> all these pelts. But this one, as you can see, this puppet looks, looks kind of like me. Uh -huh. uh, this is uh, the Rakshasa puppet, which is a, a Jainist uh, a demon. Uh, 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 name and uh, this is the the demon from uh, Civet, which helps my character get past his autosexuality. Um, this is what ends up getting summoned, and uh, there's some sexual interaction with it. And this is the uh, let me pull it up here. See, this is the the puppets the puppets anatomical part here. Yeah. Which yeah. Is, that's a that's a cake. The thing on the end there that's for uh, putting uh, icing on a cake. Um, that's the part that really made me think of Tetsuo. Oh, yeah, yeah, I can see that. I can see that. My work gets compared a lot to Basket, if you've ever seen Basket Case. Because um, there's a stop-motion sequence in Basket Case. Okay. Uh, I don't know. I, I take it as a compliment. But anyway, this um, Christian Sagavsky from uh, Blood, Tea, and Red String, she worked with me. She was the other animator on the film, and she cast my face and did a really nice job on this puppet with the hair. She did a lot of that. Yeah, it's uh, really good. Thanks. And these puppets up here, these are made out of, that's made out of a CPR dummy. Um, that's uh, from a film I made called Hikikomori, which uh, was for an art show. It's the first stop motion thing I did. He's a little clunky. And a long time ago, I was going to do a werewolf movie and it kind of floundered, but I kept the head that I made. So I made a, a puppet out of him. They're kind of clunky, but it was, they're in the first stop motion thing I ever did. So it's kind of fun to watch. It's only a three minute thing. And uh, there's also a cast, I've got a witch hat on it, but there's a cast of my face that from Civet that crawls onto my face. Um, so this is it. This is what I fantasize I will look like when I'm dead. Okay. So I've been drug out of a river or something. So yeah, yeah. so a lot of these things, uh, they're pretty, the gravity makes it hard to animate them. Uh, but they have, you know, heavy-duty ball joints, and I have to use tools to tighten them with each movement so the, you know, the, the arms don't fall and the heads don't fall. But, uh, yeah, I thought it might be fun to show these up kind of up close. Well, that's I, awesome. You're like a big, happy family. Big, happy. Yeah, these are my kids. I, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm fixed, so I'm not going to have any kids. So um, so these are my, my, uh, my children. Oh, and there's those little computers back there. Talk, can you talk about those computers? Oh, I always see those in your films, too. Yes, yes. I, I collect vintage. Uh, I have a lot of, can't really see them, maybe vintage electronics, old computers from the 70s and 80s. Um, but I really like dumb terminals. So we've got some dumb terminals here. My favorite one is actually upstairs on display in my office. But, um, yeah, these are terminals from the 70s. This one's from the 80s. So... For the kids who don't know, uh, when you worked in an office in the 70s, you had what's called a mainframe computer, which the computer was a central computer. And on your desk would be a terminal, which is a dumb terminal, means it doesn't actually do anything on its own. It has to be plugged into a mainframe. So these 
Now, these have taken off now because people are really obsessed with uh, the old electronics, but I got these on eBay for almost fucking nothing. Um, but, and one of them, you know, is the CRT broke, so I mounted a modern screen in it. This is the one from Civet where you can see the the uh, the guy on the screen. But yeah, these, um, these are what I grew up with. This is the kind of technology I like. Stunted technology that does really amazing stuff is what I like in my films. It's like, well, that's really outdated, but it does stuff that's really fantastic. Um, so yeah, these are going to be in, in my, in my next film. You know, it, it, the impression I got from seeing these sorts of things in, in Civet, there's, they're in Civet and I think, it was, I, I think I saw it on previews for Terminal Emulator too. Yeah, uh, there's going to be some of that stuff. It gives the feeling to me of, okay, yeah, this is in the future, but in the future, they're really poor. The, you, can, you can be in the future, but... The technology can be like in a state of de-evolution. There's no guarantee that the, in the future everything's going to be more futuristic and better and cleaner and nicer. Sometimes shit Not gets all. worse, you know. <laughs> yes, it does. Yes, it does. And I, I like that you you think along those lines because that's that's sort of my interpretation of a, a stunted some, some stunted futurism. And it's incidentally, a George, it's a George Lucas thing too. Used universe, you know. Hmm? For like I mean, the, Star Wars episode four. Is, Absolutely. And incidentally, the, the title of the film, Terminal Emulator, what that means is a terminal emulator is a piece of software that's outdated now, um, which if you're at home and you're it's the 70s and you've got a computer at home and you need to dial in to get on your work mainframe computer, you use a piece of software called a terminal emulator, which makes your home computer emulate, pretend to be one of these terminals. Mm. So, in the context of my film, the main character is, without giving the plot away too much, she's pretending to be something that she's not, uh, which ends up resulting in her demise. So she's emulating something which is, and it's, it's terminal for her. So <laughs> I used awesome. to have a, a Texas Instruments computer and there was a terminal emulator uh, software disk I had. I thought, that's a really cool term. I'd like to use that for something at some point. Yeah. Like 1982, and now I'm, I'm doing it 40 years later. So Yeah, excellent. Excellent. All right. Well, Benjamin, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate this. You bet. Um, I'm encouraging all of my listeners to go check out your films, Civet and Terminal Emulator, and look for uh, opportunities for like the, the Indiegogo. I'll put the information about it in the show notes for the page. And as Thank stuff you. comes out, you keep me going on, keep me, keep me in the loop. And uh, I'm going to promote and retweet it and everything, because I think this is like really significant stuff that needs to be out there. People need to see it. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And it's nice to finally meet you. I, I missed you uh, 15 years ago and uh, now we're finally uh, connecting. Right, right, right. 15 years. Uh, we missed a show. So, uh, so the story <laughs> was you're doing a show but with uh, Alwyn, right in Dallas. Right. Yes. And um, and I was supposed to play the show with Verdandi. Yeah. Uh, Aaron was Aaron with Alwyn was hooking it all up, and I had some other shit going on, and had to had to cancel it, and uh, missed our opportunity to meet back then. But now we're finally um, we're we're making up for that now that we're both older and wiser and probably totally different people. So definitely, yeah, yeah I, I've definitely evolved. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. All right. Thank you, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Right, Shem Ham Farash. Shem Ham Farash.